My name is Lauren, and I'm a covenant member here at Redeemer. And this morning, we're going to be reading in Colossians chapter 3, starting verse 22 and going through chapter 4, verse 1. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and barely, knowing that you have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, you guys take a seat, get comfortable, settle in, get your notes out if you take notes. I feel like I've, I, um, before I preach regularly, and even still sometimes when I'm listening to Brian or another guy named Ryan preaching, I will try to take notes, and then like two-thirds of the way through, I forget that I'm taking notes, and so I end up with partial notes in my journal. Um, so if that's you, that's okay. Hopefully um, you, you can remember some things in the, on the back half and fill that in later. Uh, I just want to say I feel great coming back to preach. It's been since the day after Christmas that I've been able to preach. Uh, we had a baby, and then we had COVID, and it's been a couple weeks since I've, uh, last week was my first week back in a couple weeks just to gather and worship with you guys. Um, and then this week is my first week back preaching, and it feels good. I'm, this is where I need to be. This is, uh, this is what, uh, there's a pastor in Minnesota. This is my habitus. He calls that your habitus. When you find that job, that career that just like matches the way that you live and breathe, it's a habitus. And, and that's how I feel this morning. It's been a joy for me um, to meditate on the scriptures on your behalf this week, to pray for you genuinely. I'm thinking about you and praying for you. And there's so many faces that I still don't know every week coming in. So just real quick, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. I always forget to introduce myself, but welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, yeah, it feels good. So let's get into Colossians, Colossians 3. We're nearing the end of our Colossians series. Um, it's a four-chapter book, but man, we stretched that thing out into 20-some-odd weeks and... And we're, we're going to make it through by the end of February. So uh, thank you guys for, for walking through Colossians with us. Um, Brian last week shared with us that uh, our, our home relationships are tied to the gospel, right? How does the gospel influence our home lives? This week we're going to talk about how does the gospel influence our work lives? Because there's something really important about work that I need you to know. And if you're a note taker, Write this down, and if this is all you write down, if you forget to write down the rest of it, that's okay. What you need to know is that work is worship. Work is worship. Whether you believe it or not, whether you are aware of it or not, work is worship. That's how we were designed. There's three things, three ways of living that God gave us as worship when he created all of creation. When he looked on humanity and created us and he said, this is very good, he gave us three rhythms of life, rest, play, and work. All three rhythms of life that culminate in worship of God, the creator. Work is 
worship. Now, because Genesis 3 is in our Bibles, because sin is real, because we are all broken by sin, our work is broken by sin. And so there's two, there's, there's a lot of ways that our work is broken. There's two things specifically that this text is addressing that our work is broken by. So there's two lies, two fundamental lies that make our work worship something else. Whether it's work itself, we can worship work, we can worship ourselves, we can worship what we get from work. Money, power, approval, satisfaction. Our relationship to work is broken because we are broken. Our hearts are broken because of sin. So, two lies that we've got to address. Lie number one, work can fulfill us. Lie number two, work can define us. I'm going to repeat that, and I'll I'll be repeating that throughout. Lie number one, work can fulfill us. And lie number two is that work can define us. So what we just did with these songs, we worshiped. That is worship. Singing songs to God, praising his name with our lips, with our singing, hearing one another, praise God, that is worship. That is one reason that we gather on Sundays. But that's not all that worship is. When we were created... God gave us those three rhythms of rest, play, and work so that worship would be the way that we live. We live worship. We worship God with our lives, not just our vocal cords. Who we live for, what we live for, determines what we worship. And so if we're letting work fulfill us, if we're letting work define us, our worship is not Our work is not focused on worshiping God, okay? I'll explain with a personal example. Um, You've you've heard Brian and I say before that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to, to write good sermons. I mean, who doesn't want compliments, right? But we put a lot of time and effort and energy and prayer into writing a sermon. We want it to be good, And a lot of times our hearts can be in the right place. We want it to be good because we want God to be glorified. We want you to be edified. We want the gospel to be clear to you. We want you to teach you how to apply it to your lives. But there's something twisted in our hearts that can make our sermons about us to where we think, oh, I can can write a good sermon. I want the attaboys. I want the compliments. And so we can, there's a way in which we can make our our preaching and our sermon writing serve ourselves, where we worship approval. I ultimately feel like there's some ability that I have to earn God's favor through my preaching, that God would be happy with me if I preach a good sermon. Now, what happens if I find out that my sermons aren't that good? If I preach a bad one or find out all of them are bad? What happens under, under functioning this way, I'm not okay. If I can't be okay with my sermons not being awesome, I'm worshiping what I do. And I'm letting what I do define who I am. Is that clear? Does that make sense? There's a way that we can all do this, no matter what we do. I want to be clear with something really quick. A lot of you compliment us, and we are so grateful. We need your encouragements. Please encourage your pastors 
when you compliment us, I hear a lot of times people will say, hey, I know, I know that, that you, you struggle with hearing compliments. That is true. It's not your compliments that are the problem. It's not your compliments and encouragements that are broken. It's our hearts that are broken. And I'll tell you, in fact, when you do encourage us and you say, hey, that sermon meant something to me. The Spirit spoke to me in that. When you say things like that, it humbles us. It has a way of like having the reverse effect. When we know that the gospel sank into your heart and the Spirit spoke to you through something we said, we're like, oh man, my motives were kind of messed up sometimes in that. And the Spirit still used that. It humbles us when we're prideful. It also encourages us when we're discouraged. And we all know it's easy to be discouraged in our work. So encourage one another, encourage your pastors, encourage one another that, that you guys, as we work, our work is worship. Okay? Now, let's get into um, these lies that we can, we can believe. Lie number one, remember, work can fulfill us. Let's look at verses... 22 and 23. Um, Lie number one is that work can fulfill us. The truth in the face of that lie is that only Jesus can fulfill us. The whole theme of Colossians is only Jesus. Only Jesus can fulfill us. Verses 22, uh, chapter 3, 22 through 23. Bond servants, obeying everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So when verse 22 says eye service and people pleasers, um, it contrasts this idea of, of working for an image to sincerity of heart. That instantly convicted me of what I just told you about with our motivations with preaching. When, when, I'm, when I'm working in order to get something, in order to make myself look better, that's in contrast to a sincere heart. Our hearts are in the wrong place. The Holy Spirit in Colossians chapter three instantly makes work a heart issue in verse 22 and 23, okay? So this eye service compared to sincere hearts we have this tendency of presenting ourselves to the world because we have a lot of fears, we have a lot of wounds, we have a lot of shame, we have a lot of insecurities, right? We're human and we're broken by sin. So we have hurts, we have pains, we have shame. We are aware of failure. And because of this, we like to project this image of ourselves to the world that doesn't match this reality of what we believe about ourselves. That's eye service and people-pleasing. When our hearts are not genuine, but we try to cover up who we think we are. We try to cover up our fears and our shame and our wounds and our past by being incredible workers or by being apathetic. So let me give you some examples. I used to work at a golf shop and... Uh, the, all the windows that pointed to the parking lot and the golf course, uh, all the walls had windows. So we could see when our boss was driving up in a golf cart or walking up from the parking lot. And I'm 16 years old, 
What do you think I'm doing if the boss is out playing golf? I'm in the back sitting down. This was before the time where like apps were really a thing, so I didn't have much to do. I'm, I'm sitting down, uh, probably talking to somebody, probably eating a Snickers. It was the job of the guy at the counter to say, hey, boss is coming back. And we'd get up, start cleaning clubs, and run outside and polishing the golf carts. How do we work when our boss is not around compared to when they are? Do we do the minimum amount to keep our boss off our backs? Eye service and people-pleasing. Is any, any of you teachers? I taught for six years. Man, how many times have you heard, is this for a grade? <laughs> I taught high school. I taught, I taught a, a, a non-core elective class. You know how many times I heard, is this for a grade? Our hearts are not sincere in our work when we know we're not going to be judged by it. So we have this disposition towards apathy. But we also, on the other end of the spectrum, have this disposition towards we can muster the power and the strength. I can be awesome enough to get something out of my work and make something of myself. That's the American dream, right? The other end of the spectrum, if you're like me, you put too much pressure on yourself to get good marks by your performance. You may neglect your family or your friendships or even your own personal health in order to climb the ladder, in order to keep the boss happy, in order to keep your clients happy. We have this disposition, and and some of us it's both. I find this a lot in me, where it depends on the situation. I'll I'll either go towards apathy or I'll go towards performance. That's us working for something out of our work. We're putting work in the place of God and worshiping work. Okay, so this is, this is what the Spirit means when he says, uh, do your work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. But we can also interpret this text to mean um, God-pleasing, that by our work ethic, we can earn favor from God, right? So I would say that a lot of us probably believe in this idea that we are justified by faith in Christ, grace freely given to us from God, right? We would believe that, and we'd probably say that, and we'd probably preach that to our neighbor, but do we live that way? It is possible for us to believe something that we live contrary in our normal lives. It is possible, so beware. We can say by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. We can say that and not live that way. We can live like we earn something from God when we work hard. Whether it's in the church we work hard or it's out in our jobs that we work hard, by our religious duties and practices, praying, reading scripture, preaching the gospel, we can say that we earn something. We can live that way. That's the anti-gospel. That's a heresy that we can earn something from God that he's already freely given to us in Jesus. And when we do this, we're distrusting God to give us what he's promised us. We're distrusting God to fulfill our needs and so we put it on ourselves to find it, to work for it, to preach for it, 
to sell for it. So that we can feel like we're good enough. That I matter. Because I work my tail off to provide for my family. So I'm a good father. That doesn't define who you are. And that doesn't give you what Jesus has already freely given you in his life, death, and resurrection. We worship God with our work when we live a life that communicates to this outside world that's watching and listening, they are. We live a life that worships God when we communicate to this outside world that we have a good God that we long to work for, that our work is for him, not because he's demanding and harsh and abusive, but because he's good and loving and merciful and he accepts me when I fail. He loves me even when my sermons are terrible. And I've preached some doozies. The world wants to see this Jesus that we proclaim. And when we pretend, when we believe and we act like we have to earn what Jesus gives us, are we telling the world about Christ? Are we telling the world about our own works? The Holy Spirit reminds us in verse 24 that we already have a promised inheritance. And that the substance of this inheritance, there's so many tangible and spiritual things that God promises to us. But the substance of this inheritance is presence with God, heaven. That when we put our faith in Jesus to forgive us of our sin and make us right before God, our inheritance instantly becomes presence with him forever. Let's read um, verse, 24, uh, verse 22 again, because there's a, uh, something I want to clarify here in just a second. Verse 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord to worship God with your work is to know that all of your deepest needs are met and fulfilled in Jesus. And when we remember that only Jesus can fulfill us, your work will be worship. Your work will worship God when you remember and live like Jesus fulfills your deepest needs, not what you do. Lie number one is that our work can fulfill us. Truth number one is that only Jesus can fulfill us. Lie number two, our work can define us. Our work can define us. The truth in that, the, the truth that we respond to that with, is that who we are defines what we do. So our work doesn't define us, Jesus defines us. He tells us who we are. And that gives meaning to our work. Who we are gives meaning to what we do. Our identity motivates our duty. I'm saying a lot of one-liners. These better end up on Instagram later. Our identity motivates our duty. Who we are gives meaning to what we do. 
And our work is worship when our identity is in Christ. Our work worships God when our identity is in Christ. Verse 22, um, this is kind of like a, this will serve the message. I want to clarify and and explain this word bondservants. Paul addresses bondservants. Some translations may say servants. Some translations may say workers. Most literally, the NASB, the most literal translation, um, modern translation, says slaves. Bondservants are slaves. And we need to be sure, I'm going to clarify up front, slavery is real today in the United States, in Texas, in San Angelo. Slavery is real. It's not the way that it used to look, necessarily. The premise is still the same. And I'll explain in just a sec. Verses 20 through 25, the bulk of our text is a reference to slaves. So the Roman lawyer uh, Gaius, he was, he was one of the people that uh, would write a lot of the, the laws for Rome in um, 100 and 200 AD in, in that time frame. And he, he said, he made this declaration kind of defining who slaves are. He says, we may note that it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over a slave. Now, some slaves, some slaves were doctors, some slaves were teachers, some slaves were home servants, some slaves were livestock. Some slaves had incredibly dignified, meaningful work, being a physician, saving people's lives. Some people had incredibly demeaning work. It's important for us to know that the the way that slaves are addressed in the Roman culture that Paul is writing in, they are property, not people. Another human being has the right of their life. They're not people. They're tools at the disposal of their master. Their value and worth erased. So that, that's the first point I want to make about slaves. Slaves are property. The second point I want to make about slaves is that slaves have no identity. When a slave goes under the control of their master, they forcibly forfeit their entire identity. They don't have a last name anymore, is essentially what this means. They can't vote. They can't make decisions for themselves. They don't get an inheritance they certainly don't have an inheritance to pass on. So we have this idea of who a slave is that Paul is writing to when he says, obey in everything your masters on earth. How are we supposed to follow that? And most of us in here, we're probably not slaves, even though that exists today, but we're still under authority. So when Paul is referring to slaves who... It was somewhere between 60 and 70% of the workforce in Rome were slaves. So he's really saying, if you have a job and a master, because if you're not a slave, you're probably a slave master. If you do work, obey in everything. Now, this is not just a blanket obedience. He's already established that our obedience first goes to Christ. So anything that is in opposition to Christ, Paul already has established 
You're, you're not under that authority. Your obedience is in, in line with Christ. So everything under the authority of Christ, obey in your earthly master. One more thing I want to make very clear. The gospel opposes slavery in all forms. Ancient, modern, chattel slavery, bond slavery, whatever it is. Because the premise of the gospel is that it's for all people. And if God chooses to make his salvation known to all people, that instantly elevates the dignity and worth of all people on the same playing field. The very premise of slavery is to diminish or erase the value and dignity and worth of a human to become an object. The gospel directly opposes slavery. Now, why don't you see the apostles declaring this opposition in Scripture? Really quick, I want to clarify that. When the apostles, the apostles are pastors. When they're writing, they're writing to churches in order to clarify the gospel, to make definitions clear, and to teach how to apply the gospel to our lives. Their primary concern is not social reform. Their primary concern is the salvation of the believer. The gospel, as it makes its way into our hearts and spreads like wildfire through society, then has the opportunity to dismantle slavery. This is why we preach the gospel. Not because we're wanting to change the government. Not because we're wanting to change people's ideologies and philosophies. We preach the gospel for the salvation of the individual in hopes that the gospel would take root in their heart and would multiply in their lives. And by way of preaching the gospel, things like slavery and racism and nationalism would be dismantled completely and the kingdom of God would be on earth. The gospel influences our work lives because work is worship. Okay, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> Let's get back to Colossians. When Paul is addressing slaves, he's not simply speaking to people who have jobs and careers. He's speaking to people whose jobs and careers are their identity given to them, forced on them. They're reduced entirely down to what they do. So when we define ourselves by what we do, we are making ourselves slaves to our work, not slaves to Christ. Faith in Jesus transforms us from God's enemies. Remember last week, Brian uh, helped us understand how our identity influences our home relationships, and he used uh, Colossians 3.12, Colossians 1, we covered what Jesus actually did. Can you put that up, Britt? Colossians 1, uh, what is it, 22, 21 through 22. We were once alienated and hostile towards God. Completely separate, unable to do anything about it. But because of the death of Jesus Christ, he lived a perfect life and therefore his death was innocent. He paid the penalty for our sin so that... Fast forward to Colossians 3, 12. We might be chosen, holy, and dearly loved by God. 
We who were God's enemies, he sent his son to make us children. That is wild. What did we do for that? The only thing we contribute to that equation is the sin that needs forgiveness. Jesus gives us our identity as chosen, holy, and beloved. Why would we give that up in order to make ourselves slaves to our work? When we find our identity in Christ, our work worships God because it tells the world who defines us. If you have an undignified work life, you feel like your job is meaningless. In Christ, if you are in Christ, your work has dignity because you work for him. Your work is worship. It's not meaningless. It's worship of the God that saved you. Faith in Jesus restores our God-given identity and brings dignity to our work so that we can worship God with it. Our identity fuels our duty. Who we are gives meaning to what we do. So, all of, all of Colossians chapter 3 is making this point, that who we are gives meaning to what we do. That's why at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul starts with our identity, and then he tells us how to live based on that identity. Not to create that identity, but from it. So this should also clarify this awkward, like, four one's a part of chapter three, but it's a part of chapter four. I know that's confusing. We don't have the time for that. But four one says, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. It's connected to chapter 3 in part because it comes from this identity statement. The gospel, what Jesus has done for us by giving us an identity as chosen, holy, and loved, it humbles those in authority who think they have the position to use people as objects. It humbles us. And it elevates the others. The gospel is the great equalizer. It puts us on equal footing that we are all under Christ. Masters have a master in heaven. So the command to treat one another justly and fairly is not just this like throwaway thing. What Paul is saying there, what the Holy Spirit is saying through Paul is treat each other like the gospel is real. If you're an employer, your employees are not at your disposal as objects to be used for your convenience or your pleasure or your power. The gospel elevates them in your eyes. For those of us who are in authority like the masters of 4.1, the gospel humbles us under the authority of Jesus Christ. It elevates the dignity of those who work under us. Though most of us are probably not slaves, we still probably work under authority. If you're a student, if, you're, if you have a boss, You work under someone else's um, authority. The gospel elevates your status. The gospel elevates your status. Not your master, not your work. It's the gospel. And it frees you up to obey them. It gives you dignity no matter what it is that you do. 
Pastor Kent Hughes says that when we worship God in front of this watching and listening world, we let our fullness become its fullness. Our fullness in Christ transfers into the world and preaches the gospel to them. That even though I'm under authority, I'm under the authority of Christ ultimately, so I can do whatever for him. Whatever it is that that God has, the position God has put me in, the job he's given me, I can do that for him. And what this means is that our worship preaches the gospel to the world, telling us about this God that we work for. And this God that we work for is, is unlike our earthly masters. It's unlike our conceptions of God. He's not harsh. He's not demanding. He's not abusive. This God that we work for is good, and he's merciful, and he loves us. He's made us his own children. We've done nothing to earn that. We're chosen, holy, and deeply loved. This truth that Jesus fulfills us that Jesus defines us and our work can worship God, this this truth can help us answer questions that we might face that how how do we respond to vaccine mandates? As a Christian, what what ideology or philosophy do I use to respond to my boss when they tell me, you have to quit or be fired if you're not going to get the vaccine? How do we respond? How do we respond when our, when our boss asks us to do something that's borderline moral corruption at best? How do we respond when we're not sure if we can even trust our boss? How do we know what job to take or if we need to stay home with our kids and, and take care of the house? How do we know what school to go to, what our, what our major should be? How do we know answers to these questions? There's no one answer in response to any of this. What I need to tell you is that the gospel unifies us because how we respond to vaccine mandates is different for each one of us because it's, it's all dependent on the gospel. It's not dependent on whether I'm Republican or I'm Democrat. It's not dependent on whether I live in Texas or I work for this company or I believe this about human life. It's not how we respond at our work is only through the gospel. Jesus defines our work lives. Our work worships him and serves him. And so it's important for us to know as we pursue those, those answers to those questions, all of us as a church need to be unified in those responses Though we may disagree with how someone responds because of our own lives and what the gospel is doing in our own lives, the gospel unifies us when we use that as our our guiding light in our workplace. So as we consider um, how we respond to hard work conditions, um, to vaccine mandates, to bosses that we can't trust, to where do I go, what do I do, Consider these two questions. What does my soul most deeply want 
in need? What does my soul, not my flesh, what does my soul most deeply want and need? And do I believe that Jesus gives it to me freely? You have to answer that question first. That should really be the first question you answer before you respond to any situation. What does my soul need? And do I believe that Jesus gives it to me already? Because if we're finding a soul need in how we respond to work or, or how work responds to us, if we're defining ourselves that way, even if we make the, the quote-unquote right decision, we'll never be satisfied with it. The other question, what does Je- who does Jesus say that I am? Who does Jesus say that I am? Answer Colossians 3.12. <clears throat> who does Jesus say that I am? And am I confident? Do I believe and live like he has made me chosen, holy, and dearly loved? Who does Jesus say that I am? And am I confident that I am chosen, holy, and loved? So really what what we're asking is, am I looking to get fulfillment out of this work situation? Or am I looking for work to define me and tell me who I am? Is my value wrapped up in what I do? When the gospel guides us, we can be unified as a church. Um, I I talked about failure earlier. I talked about um, what happens if I find out all my sermons are just garbage. Um, if, if I get judged by, you know, whatever auditing, uh, system or X29 or Redeemer Network guys come to me and they're like, dude, you gotta let Brian take over. What happens if my fulfillment and my identity is in preaching? What happens? I'm destroyed. So think about that. What in your life? if it falls apart, would destroy you. That's where your hope is. If the gospel falls apart, would it destroy you? Honestly, a lot of days I would, I would, I would have to answer that question honestly and say no. If the gospel falls apart, it, I could keep, probably keep living just the way I am. Then I'm... I'm not believing the truth of the gospel. What happens when we fail? What happens when we do, in fact, abuse or mistreat our employees? When we do, in fact, respond harshly to the people under us? What happens when we inevitably put our hope and our identity in what we do? Essentially, what happens when we fail to obey Scripture in Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1? What happens? So, like I said before, we either respond with apathy, futility. All right, all hope is lost. I'm done. Or we think we can pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, put on a better face, smile a lot more, try harder, be better. We think there's something in us that we can muster up to accomplish that task to find that fulfillment in that identity. Apathy or performance is how we respond to failure. But Jesus, in Matthew 11, the entire premise of our spring study, 
Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my work upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that what we want? Rest for our souls. He offers it to us. So how do we come to him? How do we make sure that our lives are finding fulfillment in Christ, that are finding our identity in Christ, that we're finding rest for our souls in him and not what we do? We need three things. Scripture, prayer, and the church. You are not only an individual. When you put your faith in Christ and your identity is transformed from hostility, from alienation and separation from being God's enemy, when your identity is transformed from that into God's child, holy, chosen, dearly loved, you become a part of the rest of us whose identity is that very same thing. We're a family. So when we believe this gospel, that Jesus forgives us of our sin and he transforms our identity, you join with the rest of us who are also chosen, holy, and loved. When we fail to worship God with our work, we can turn to Jesus. We can let him be on the forefront of our minds. When we pray, this is why we make our lives surrounded by prayer and scripture. This is what unifies us as a church. We need each other. I need Brian in the hallway as I'm writing a sermon. Knock on my door. Hey, man, I just wanted to come check on you and pray for you. Because I know that we both have this tendency to find our identity in what we do. I want to make sure that you're putting that in Christ. And he does that. He checks on me. I need the church. I need your encouragement to remind me it's not me. We need each other's encouragement that Jesus defines us, that Jesus fulfills us, and that our work is worship. And communion is a confession of that. So we've got tables in the back on both sides. We've got a table up here to my left, to your right. Communion is a confession to one another and to God that we have sinned, that we have failed, that we have fallen short, We've looked to our work to satisfy and fulfill us and define us. Communion is a confession. It's also a reminder to ourselves. When we take communion, we're remembering this is the body and the blood of Jesus broken and poured out for my sin. This is forgiveness. Thank you, God. We're also preaching this gospel to one another. As I watch Ryan Gandy take communion, it uplifts my soul to watch him confess and turn to Jesus. Communion is an opportunity for us to declare the truth of the gospel together. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus, why not now? What better time? Come talk to Brian or I. For those of us who fail, that makes all of us 
preach the gospel of satisfaction and identity in Jesus alone. Your work is worship because you are chosen, holy, and dearly loved. Preach this gospel to yourself. Preach this gospel to one another. This is the truth that that gives us a sure foundation. This is the truth that unifies us as a church.